The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine featuring topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, Emergencies and People with Disabilities, and Part 1 of Fashion Tips and Observations for Plus Sizes from Lynn Cooper. Welcome to ACB Reports for March 2007. The needs of people with disabilities during an emergency came to the forefront following Hurricane Katrina. Since then, the American Council of the Blind and other disability groups have participated in ongoing discussions with emergency agencies and service providers. During the annual convention in 2006, ACB Executive Director Melanie Brunson introduced a panel discussion of this important subject. We have with us to talk about some exciting things that are happening at WGBH in the area that all of you have a great deal of interest in, emergency warnings on television. So I would like to introduce to you from the media access group at WGBH, someone many of you know and have seen at ACB for a number of years, Mary Watkins. We have a project that has been funded by the Department of Commerce, Technology Opportunities Program, to look at the way people with disabilities receive information about emergencies, both leading up to, during, and in the aftermath of either a natural or a man-made emergency. And we are working with first responders around the country, as well as manufacturers of devices that we receive warnings on, be that a cell phone, be that a pager, be that television, be that radio as well as folks who are developing standard technology protocols for how to deliver information to the mainstream public. And the ideal scenario is that we inform efforts going forward about how to best reach people who are deaf, hard of hearing, blind, visually impaired, or deaf-blind. And this is the very first WGBH research project that has actually touched on the community of people who are deaf-blind, and we are very proud of, of this effort. Skipping straight to what you probably will find most interesting, in the fall and this past winter, we conducted focus groups. We actually hired the American Foundation of the Blind uh, and two groups representing people who are deaf and hard of hearing to conduct focus groups with people about how they receive information about emergencies now, how their ideal scenarios would be. What is the ideal way they would like to receive information about emergencies, getting information independently, perhaps, of, of other people? And then sort of an ideal blue sky, what if we could do anything technologically, what would we do? It's important to say we surveyed people who considered themselves both technically savvy and people who didn't consider themselves technically savvy. It's important to get the feedback of both. Here is the results. People who are blind, visually impaired receive communication and information notification via first and foremost radio and increasingly television and not to forget ham radio, satellite radio, weather radios that turn on during emergencies, automated calls by local emergency agencies, email alerts from local TV stations, sirens if in a small or rural community, and family, friends, or neighbors, which people consider a secondary source. Blind and visually impaired consumer concerns. 
Televised text scrolls and graphics cater to sighted audiences. TV reporters that say over here and in the red area versus telling you where these warnings are in effect. Diminishing number of locally owned and operated radio stations and hence availability and reliability of local alerts. Stations that cover wide areas and therefore don't provide enough specifics during a weather event. And training of public officials needed, especially around the importance of guide dogs and the fact that they are not pets. Suggestions are improve what currently exists, take what is in terms of technology, and make it more accessible. Broadcast audio warnings in additional languages. Use beepers to alert users to emergency situations and to seek further information. Provide an 800 number for emergency information in your area that people know ahead of time and are not learning during an emergency. Phone options preferable to instant messaging. Dissemination of software that can send more than one type of a message. And stick with low-tech options to maximize accessibility. Other suggestions. There's relatively few complaints on the quality of warning notification now. Emergency alert system warnings are taken seriously, those that come on the TV or radio. They capture attention, build on this with tones on other devices. Improve broadcast weather reports by reducing vague pointing and over here and there. And the concern comes with what do I do now post-evacuation in terms of transportation, accessible shelters, when away from home and TV and radio. And a suggestion beyond our current project is to engage local communities of blind and visually impaired consumers and first responders, similar to an ongoing effort in the deaf community right now that is funded by the Department of Homeland Security. Very, very quickly, people who are deaf and blind say they receive emergency information from family, friends and neighbors, television reports if they have some residual sight or hearing, computer-generated email, sale and amplified phone service, community sirens, and conventional radio. And the issues about what they would like almost skew exactly to people who are blind and visually impaired. Except there's much more reliance, as you can imagine, on neighbors and people to get their information, and people want to be able to get information independently. That is a project that's ongoing now. The next stage will be conducting usability tests in the Boston area with people who are deaf, people who are blind, visually impaired, hard of hearing, and deafblind. We're going to test the content of messages about emergencies, whether the content is useful and whether you have suggestions to build on the content and make it more full in terms of what's available. And also look at the interface on cell phones, pagers, and televisions and radios to make sure that is as accessible as possible. Very quickly, and then I'm going to turn it over to um, my colleague from the Red Cross. There are two additional projects that are ongoing at GBH that touch on this. One is how to make in-flight emergency and information available. We're moving to having seatback displays on most airlines. People want to be able not only to enjoy a movie, but also to see a news broadcast because a lot of them will have satellite access to CNN, etc. So it's both the content on the on-screen, your back seat, 
device and also the interface for people who are blind, visually impaired to be able to work that independently. Secondly, a project called Access to On-Screen Information. We know this is a huge concern, scrolling text along news broadcasts locally. We are looking for ways to output that text via DTV systems to an audio channel on your DTV so you can hear what the scrolling messages are actually saying. Those are two other projects that are informing our Access to Emergency Alerts project. I'm looking forward to working with folks from ACB around the country, and a lot of you probably get my menacing Mopix emails each week. You know my email address, and so you can always get in touch with me that way. Thank you. I'm Victoria Melvin. I'm with the National Headquarters of the American Red Cross. I'm here to talk to you about preparedness, and I've been asked to speak a little bit about the role of the Red Cross. Well, I wanted to first just talk briefly about the role of the Red Cross because my job is about preparedness. My office writes the publications. where are the technical advisors for our communications group. And it's our job to make sure that our information that goes out for the public that is available to our chapters across the country, we have a little more than 800 chapters, have the most update available information. And the latest thing that we're doing is we have created a new volunteer and uh, employee training course because our volunteers are from all over the country and all walks of life and they need to be more sensitive and understanding of how to work with people with disabilities. First of all, I think all of you live very dynamically to be here now. I am so impressed. And I'd like to know, how many of you have a plan? If there was an emergency in an hour and you had to evacuate, you'd probably be in pretty good shape because you have a suitcase. What if you were at home and you were still in bed and you had to evacuate in an hour, what would you do then? Those are some of the details that I want to talk about. So I said that, that I would talk a little bit about the Red Cross. The Red Cross is a humanitarian organization. We're led by volunteers to provide relief to victims of disaster, to help people prevent, prepare for, and respond to emergencies. And we've been given this charter by Congress. We can't talk about preparedness in the future without having this huge backdrop of Katrina. In Hurricane Andrew, we served 5 million meals and snacks during that hurricane. In 2004, we served three times that amount. We thought that was a huge response. Remember there were four hurricanes that year? With Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, we served 49 million meals. And that was three times the 2004 season. So I, I won't belabor that, but there's a lot of confusion sometimes about what the Red Cross does and what the Red Cross does not do. When there's a federal response, and the federal response plan is enacted in the case of a national disaster, the Red Cross is one, do you know how many uh, emergency support functions there are in the federal 
response plan? Well, there are at least 12 different emergency support functions. The Red Cross is number six. Our assignment is to serve mass care. That's not medical. That's not transportation. There are a whole bunch of, it's called ESF functions. And the Red Cross is not firefighting or resource support. We're not hazardous materials. So you can imagine that a lot of people who enter our shelters are confused if we don't provide those other services. And it's very difficult for us because being a humanitarian organization, we really want to help everyone, and we do the best we possibly can to do that. When someone comes to our shelter who has special needs, I like to say unique needs, because we all have unique needs. The function of our shelter is to shelter and feed and serve any individual who comes to our shelter, regardless of who they are, where they came from, it matters not. The only differentiating issue is whether or not there's a medical need or something that we are not licensed to provide. Service animals are absolutely accepted in Red Cross shelters. I just attended uh, the Humane Society's conference a couple of weeks ago, and it was a very big issue that there were difficulties in some shelters, but it's not the case. I just want to encourage all of you about preparedness and say thank you for having us here. We have a huge website. What is not in a PDF is available through HTML for you to read. You have your own plan that Day has told me about the three circles, but what I just want to emphasize is technology can fail. And I just want to encourage each and every one of you to have a personal family communication plan. Who are you going to call someone out of state to let them know you either have to evacuate or if you have evacuated that you're okay? Or in your location, there's a storm, let them know so that you know where to go and what to do. We have a tremendous amount of preparedness information. I so encourage you to take your own personal steps to plan exactly what you're going to do for an hour from now, wherever you are, and base that on your lowest day of performance of how you feel or what you need to do. What will you do in that moment if something strikes in your neighborhood? So when technology fails, what is your buddy system? And I think you already have a strong one. Call your local Red Cross and you're the ones, you're the leaders who can help steer a greater collaboration. We have a statement of understanding with ACB and it is to reach out and have people in our volunteer programs and there's a lot more going on about that and I, I would have liked to have read some of what our SOU is but I just want to say it's a great partnership. Thanks. Thank you so much, Victoria, and thank you, Mary. This is Dale Mohammed from the Department of Governmental Relations. I just wanted to add a quick sentence or two about the fact that ACB actually just recently signed like a memorandum of understanding so we can work much closer with the Red Cross, get an understanding of how they operate, and also so they can get a better understanding about how we operate and how much we both have to learn from each other and how much better we can work together with increased communication. So uh, thank you very much.
Future editions of ACB Reports will feature more information about this topic. Meanwhile, contact your local affiliate of the American Council of the Blind for more information about emergency preparedness in your area. Do you have comments about today's program? Send an email message to reports at acbradio.org or write to us at American Council of the Blind. 1155 15th Street, Northwest, Suite 1004, Washington, D.C., 20005. Here's Lynn Cooper with Part 1 of Fashion Tips and Considerations for Plus Sizes. In general, the population is not only aging, but we are growing, no pun intended. The average American woman today is a size 12 to 16, most hovering around 14, and 62% of us wear a size 14 or larger, and men since 1960, Mike, have grown in size an average of 25 pounds. The fellows were on average 160 pounds in 1960. Today, they're hovering around 192. So what we're looking at when we talk about plus sizes and my plus sizes, for some strange reason, refers to women's clothing and big sizes. That is relevant to men. So when a man goes into a store uh, to ask for a big size, it is a large growth market in men and women's apparel retail. In fact, because the U.S. population is growing in size, uh, petites and small sizes are actually going by the wayside. And this is an issue for women and men who are of smaller sizes. So we are finding more specialization in the larger sizes, but actually we're finding small sizes often going by the wayside, where it used to start at zero and two, now start four, six, and sometimes eight. Plus sizes for uh, women are 14 to 24, sizes 14 to 24 and above. And it's important for our listeners to remember that, particularly for women, a plus size, which is known as a plus size woman size, is about two sizes larger than a regular, which is referred to as a Mrs. size. So you could have a plus size 14 and a regular size 14? Absolutely. And the way that you will usually note it, and we can take, you know, you take your human mirror with you or you, you get assistance at the store, Mike, is usually it will be denoted uh, for men and women as a, as a large size or a plus size department. So if you want to ask for that, if it's not obvious to you, and the size designation will have a W after it, Mike. It will say, for instance, um, 14W or 18W, what have you. Once again, usually starting at 14, and that W denotes women. So that is always going to be at least a size larger than if you would go across the aisle into the Mrs. department, and that's M-I-S-S-E-S, and that would not necessarily have an M behind the number. It would just have a 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16. The oversizes or large sizes for men are usually referred to as those things above extra large. And then we start getting into 1XL, 2XL, and what have you. So when you are shopping for menswear, it is important to note that you usually want to ask for big clothing. I don't know if any of our listeners are familiar with what used to and still are referred to as big and tall men shops. Well, actually, because men and women are getting so much larger and bigger in height as well, a lot of those stores have gone by the wayside, and instead, many menswear stores, both online and bricks and mortar, are running really deep in clothing for large 
men and tall men. That leads me, Mike, into some basic tips and rules of thumb as we approach our large size discussion today. And for ease and handling, for me and our listeners, I'm going to refer to both men and women's large sizes as plus sizes. So, once again, standard rules of wardrobe selection apply. Everything we've talked about over the years in these segments apply. When we go shopping, we have to look for versatility, quality, the colors that are appropriate, how we're going to use the garment, the cut of the garment, will it be easily maintained, etc. All of these still apply when we go looking to buy a plus-size clothing. And sizes, very importantly, Mike, sizes vary according to the manufacturer. Now, I'm sure everybody's encountered this. In this manufacturer, I'm a size 8, and over here, I'm a size 10 or 12. There's such a thing as vanity sizing, where they will, on the label, put a size or two lower. And that's really frustrating. So one big tip that I offer our listeners is have your physical measurements on hand when you are shopping. Your general measurements, your sleeve, your waist for women, your bust, your neckline, your inseam. Because, as I said, somebody's extra large or 2X is going to be sized one way and another manufacturer's another. So if you carry that with you, update it, both up or down, whenever is necessary. Carry it in a little piece of paper, hand it to the salesperson or your personal shopper, what have you. Um, If in doubt, ask the store. Very important to once again make sure that retailer's idea of the size you're looking for is actually the size you're looking for. And there are, I'm going to mention where to find them, but I would refer to a measurement and a size chart. I found a couple of them online that are absolutely wonderful. They break down all of the numbered sizes and what a plus size is for men and women. Don't forget to also consider your lingerie. That can really uh, alter how you look. Hosiery, shoes, boots, hats, gloves, all of these are issues that um, retailers are addressing, so it may take a little digging. But usually the places where you can find oversized clothing, you will also be able to find these accessories. Not a one-size-fits-all approach when we're dressing in plus sizes. Big and loose is equally as unattractive as wearing clothing that's too snug. So finding the perfect fit really does depend on factors that we always have to consider, four of them being our height, our weight, our bone size, and whether or not we carry our weight as an apple shape or a pear shape. Apple shape being the weight dispersed pretty much evenly throughout your body, and a pear shape meaning you are heavier on the bottom and lighter on top, hence the appearance of a pear. A few tips and techniques for men and women that we have here on finding clothes that look and feel great in plus sizes. Try various brands. I don't know about you, Mike, but I have about four or five brands of clothing that really work for me. Being a very tall woman, real important that I not spend a lot of time running around through different manufacturers for pants. I know certain manufacturers that fit me. They fit my slim, long body. Don't worry about a number. Once again, one manufacturer's eight is going to be cut like another's 12, or one 18 is going to be cut like another's 22 or possibly 14. Buy the size that truly fits, and this goes for all parts of our wardrobe. If ordering online, a good trick is to buy two sizes if you're able to, 
and return one. It saves a lot of time. And then you will have the one that works for you. And in that moment, you can, either alone or with a human mirror, decide which one works. You have them side by side. Oh, try that one on again. Nope, put that one back on again. Really a good idea. Also, another tip is when you're buying 100% cotton, whatever kind of garment it is, sleepwear, T-shirt, what have you, buy a size bigger to allow for shrinkage, even if it's primarily cotton, but there's some poly in the blend. Also, flat front pants for men and women flatter a larger figure. And avoid pleats at all costs, if you can. Uh, Not only in skirts, but primarily we're speaking about pants, and this is for men and women. It's a lot of fabric at a place where many of us carry extra weight. So flat front is actually much more flattering. Layered looks are safe for hiding bulky areas, and they're kind of nice because you can take off or put on as the weather determines. Choose undergarments carefully to avoid lines uh, peeking through clothes and to be sure that they stay in place. Real important to be fitted, especially for oversized uh, gals and guys. And make sure that the length of your pants is right. If we carry weight in our thighs and our fannies, sometimes our pants uh, ride up, and we do not want them too short. We don't want any attention given to something that is amiss. And keep it simple. Keep to a single color, preferably. It elongates one silhouette. That's kind of a, a given over the years. And dark, subtle colors are best. And if you want to bring brights into your outfit, best to use them as accents, you know, a blouse, a scarf, what have you. For women, wear heels, and I know that makes many listeners gasp, but at least a one-inch heel. We're not talking, a, you know, a stiletto here. We're talking just a one-inch heel will help elongate the leg and make one look taller and leaner, and it will um, also actually make you walk with a different posture, and the whole look will be one of more length and slimness. Put eye-catching areas of your outfit near your best attribute to bring attention there. And this goes back to what we've talked about when we talk about color and image in general. Your observer's eyes, those who are looking at you, whether they're meeting you for the first time or not, are going to be focusing on those things that are either amiss or attractive and bright. And so we want to pay attention to where we put their focus. We can complement an outfit with a blazer and a belt. And remember, cardigans and jackets, primarily for women, should be left unbuttoned. And avoid cropped peplum jackets, because as most of us would be carrying the weight in our hips or our fannies, wherever your jacket ends is where the eye will stop. And if that is in your bulkiest area, then please know that the eye of your observer will stop there. To elongate one's neck, we want to wear tops with an open neckline and preferably V-necks, whether they be a mid-V-neck or a deep V-neck, depending on the event. A crew neck, which is a round neck, because of it being circular, is going to accentuate the roundness in our face. And um, if you carry weight there, it's probably not the best idea. Wear slacks for women that have a slight flare at the bottom, not bell bottoms, but a slight flare to balance your hips and one's fanny so that there is a straight line down. We don't want to wear the pants that come tight to the ankles. It accentuates that which is on top and heavy. We have to consider our accessories too. Tiny handbags 
will, by comparison, make you look larger. It's just a uh, proportion issue. And dresses should end at or just below the knee. Too long is schlumpy, and it is going to make one look shorter and heavier. Also, wear shoes that fit, and I know that it's hard to often shop in a regular shoe department. There are a number of larger and wider shoe resources that I'm going to be getting to later, but we want to avoid that awful toe cleavage, if you will, where you're spilling out of the shoes, and it's unsightly and uncomfortable. That was Lynn Cooper of Lynn Cooper & Associates. Listen for part two of this discussion soon on ACB Reports. The ACB Reports microphones were present for the Affiliate President's Meeting and Legislative Seminar of the American Council of the Blind held in February. Listen for highlights of those meetings next month. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on Radio Information Services Nationwide on Side 4 of the Braille Forum Cassette Edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. Connecting the blind community around the world. This is ACB Radio.